Welcome to Converge Coffee with Sean Sullivan. I'm here with Jay Aconzo, who can't stand conventional thinking. He is the author of a book called Break the Wheel, Question Best Practices, Hone Your Intuition, and Do Your Best Work. And he's also the founder of Unthinkable Media, which creates original series with fast-growing startups and challenger brands. Previously, Jay was a media digital media strategist at Google, head of content at HubSpot, and the vice president of brand and community at the venture capital firm NextView. Jay's work has been cited in courses at Harvard Business School and by writers at the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fast Company, Forbes, and more. Today, he travels the world inspiring people to think for themselves when faced with endless conventional thinking. Jay, thanks for being on the show. How are you today? I'm doing well, Sean. Thanks for having me. So Jay, we were kind of talking a little bit beforehand about um, conventional thinking of a lot of people who talk about um, the five whys, the seven how-tos. And I think we're kindred spirits in the sense of, you know, why do people do that? (laughs) Um, And it just boggles my mind when we talk about that. And um, now I want to now I want to read your book, but um, kind of going into a little bit deeper, um, I want to really want to talk about break the wheel first. Um, and what inspired you? Like, what instances inspired you to write the book? Well, so just for context for people listening, so the book is about, as you said, how to how to think for yourself when faced with conventional thinking. But I like to say that. Uh, you know, finding best practices isn't actually the goal of work. It's finding the best approach for you. Whether the you here is an individual in their career or a team trying to solve a problem or grow the business uh, or serve a customer, that's what matters is that you do what works best for you. And at no point are we taught how to do that. And very little, if ever, do we talk about that difference between a best practice and best for you. I think it's a subtle but crucial difference. And I go back to my own days in school, I was a good student, tried to do all the clubs, become president of the clubs, do all the things you're quote unquote supposed to do to have a good life and career after school. And I thought I was on that path. So I, my first job out of college was at Google. And I still love and work primarily in tech. And Google at that point was Mecca. But I left for a reason, which was that I, I didn't actually like the job or like working for a large corporation like Google. And my brain was not prepared for that, Sean. Like, I thought that's what you're supposed to do. That was the quote unquote right answer for what makes a good career is you go work for a company like Google and you stay for years and years. And then I laughed and I was like, what the hell went wrong? And it wasn't anything wrong with me any more than the people that stayed had something wrong with them, even though I hated it and couldn't stay myself. It's all about self-awareness and situational awareness. So whether it's a career-based decision like where you want to work or what job or or industry you want to work in, or it's a practical project-based decision, like if you're in marketing, you know what channel are you going to try, or how are you going to message your uh, brand out into the world? Like whatever you're doing at work, literally nothing matters other than you do what works best in your situation. And we we simply don't have a playbook for that. We don't have an understanding of how to think about that. And so that's what I wanted to explore in the book. Jay, I like that because um, I've experienced that too, being in digital advertising and, and, and marketing and the media stuff. Is that um, people just blast out like all these ads, all this email, um, and it's not specific to individuals. And I like what what you're doing with break the wheel is let's break, you know, the cyclical patterns um, of, you know, these email blasts and just sending it out 
and actually think um, individualistically on how can we reach individuals and help them out. Well, what do we want to do when we want to do our best work? We look for best practices, right? And best practices profess to like deliver us to the promised land. But so often it's like, I'm going to try this best practice. Oh, nope, that didn't work. I'm going to try to follow that guru. Oh, nope, I'm still struggling. Like we're looking for all these answers and ideas out there. And what we miss is the same thing best practices don't take into account, which is the details of our unique context. And I think if we started there, if we started acting like investigators who care about evidence in their situation, instead of experts who care about absolutes in general, all of a sudden, I think you make better decisions. And there's probably 17 to 20 stories in the book, but I'd say maybe 75% of them talk about somebody who built something big, who had a meaningful career for him or herself, and they made decisions having never researched what the best practice should be. They just focused more on their own aspirations and their customer and their resource limitations. And within those little constraints, they found the best approach because they were acting like an investigator. So, so that to me, Sean, is the fundamental change I'm asking people to make, which is like stop obsessing over everyone else's answers. Start asking yourself the right questions. And in the book, we're on a journey to figure out what should those questions be? What could they be? And if we each answer them, we'll come up with different ideas. But what are the right questions to ask to root out better answers than any best practice can provide? Well, it comes down to thinking for yourself <laughs> and not being a lemming and falling off when everybody else is falling off and saying, well, why is everybody else falling off? Well, thinking for yourself is, is a powerful statement and an idea that if you're inclined to want to think for yourself, you get on board with. But the problem here is, all right, so number one, how do you do that? And number two, when you work in an organization, you can't just be like, well, screw you. I don't like the way you do your business or your work around. I'm going to think for myself. I'm going to be a rebel. And that doesn't work. So I think society has radicalized this idea of thinking for yourself. But it's not about being a genius or an innovator or a visionary. It's not about being a rebel and throwing caution to the wind and taking risks. Like Thinking for yourself is a rather practical thing to do. It's just that, again, we, we hold it up on a pedestal like we do best practices. So it's, it's not that thinking for yourself is the solution to commodity work or best practices, so to speak. It's that we have to take, I don't know, the myth away from creativity and innovation and clever decision making. And when you talk to the people who do that all the time, like everybody in this book, they do work that seems innovative or even crazy. But when you talk to them, it seems logical. And the difference is they're making a decision based on details in their context, details we didn't have access to until we talked to them. So we dub them crazy or innovative. So when I say think for yourself, I'm not encouraging everybody hearing this to go be a rebel. I am encouraging you to start investigating your own environment first. And then if you need to, go find some expertise, but only if you need to at that point. I like that. So breaking from break the wheel. Um, you work for Google, you work for, you know, HubSpot, you work for NextView. Um, can you kind of share your story of kind of breaking the wheel and why you started Unthinkable Media? Sure. So I, you know, I wanted to be a sports journalist and originally worked for print publications and uh, later ESPN in their communications department. And when I got into the business world at Google, I, my eyes were open to how much I love, first of all, business. But second of all, tech and just building things and inventing the future. I love that stuff. 
And uh, and so I never looked back. I worked for a, a couple of different startups. You mentioned HubSpot and then a venture capital firm. And my whole thing, my whole line of work, whether it's all that stuff or what I do now, which is make shows, write books, and speak for a living, I, I just want to make myself feel something with the work that I do and make others feel too. And so Unthinkable Media is a direct line from that belief or that desire. So Unthinkable Media is the company I, I founded to make original series with B2B brands. And the reason I want to do that isn't because I think there's a trend called podcasting and video and that's important. The reason I'm doing that is if you look at most B2B content and content about work, it's commodity, boring, copycat stuff. And that does not match. I don't know about you, Sean, but that doesn't match my experience of my work. Like I draw significant meaning and experience a wide range of emotions when it comes to work. And I don't get that reflected back at me when I consume most content about the business world. So I think it's good for the individual to make a show that has emotional resonance to it. But it's also good for a business because you're able to hold significant attention in a world where it can be really difficult to do that. So that's why that's why I started Unthinkable Media. Jay, I love it because we're kindred spirits in that. It all comes down to your your core and the core of who you are rather than the the humdrum um I'm the next white collar guy um in the line that I want to I want to break out um and, and do my own thing or build something and be in the community or doing whatever that again like you said don't be a rebel but and assess your environment and seeing if it's good enough for you or if you need to explore other things um right exactly and you know especially with unthinkable media and kind of doing some you know research on it. And when you said B2B companies um, and interviewing them, what kind of um, consistent messaging do you see from people who are doing B2B that are still in that that cycle phase of just, oh, we just need to run another campaign versus the ones that are really understanding themselves and 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 pushing pushing to their limits? I think the messaging sits on top of how people view the job. They're like, if my job is X, then the message that applies to X is this. So what most people think the job is in marketing is to acquire attention. You know, we're in this rat race to acquire lots of things, moments in time, followers, subscribers, leads, customers. We're in acquisition mode. But the job is actually not to acquire things. Like it doesn't matter how many people arrive. It matters how many people stay. And so if you look at the shift we've recently been moving through, Sean, in marketing, in business overall, the job used to be to acquire attention if you're a marketer because you'd leap out in front of a TV show, for example, that people wanted to consume and they didn't really have any recourse. They couldn't go around you. They didn't have ad blocking technology. There was only so many channels on TV. They didn't have six or seven screens in their houses that had different devices and, and connectivity. Like you had the control as a marketer. And so you'd bludgeon people and interrupt them. And so you'd acquire attention. But now the job is to hold attention. And when you make a show, that's one vehicle built expressly to hold attention. But customer experience or an experience or a brand, that's really like the larger idea behind holding attention is to build something worth paying attention to. And unfortunately, the people that don't get that to answer your messaging question, they're, they're saying things like number one in the market, you know, like world class, best of breed, you know, like bullshit, 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 bullshit. And because they think the job is to just be like, we're better than everyone else. Stop right here. Like, you know, they don't care about 
you, the person. They're not marketing to a whole person. They're marketing to you as a marketer. If they sell marketing software, to you as a sales rep, if they sell sales tools, whatever. But the people that get it and the people that I end up working with are the ones that say, we'd like to market to the whole person. And we realize that means we need a great message, sure. But we also need a concept that they care about, like a journey we're going to explore. So let me give you an example. Um, I, I work with a company called Drift to create a show called Exceptions. And it's a 10-part documentary series. At least season one is 10 parts. And we're exploring why when a B2B company bets on brand, they become an exception to all the white noise of their space. And we're talking to some amazing B2B companies like Envision and Gusto and Wistia and Zoom and more. Now, why does that big idea and why does that journey, that exploration matter to Drift? Well, Drift sells tools for you to create a better experience for your brand, to talk to customers like they're humans. They want to put the humans back in sales and marketing. So they're not saying that's what they're all about on the show. They're exploring a big idea that the audience cares about that has a direct tie back to, yeah, the tools eventually, right? And so that's an example of a company that, that gets how to deliver a message that's bigger than themselves, that holds attention, that, that creates an emotional and positive customer experience. Because in today's noisy world, that is the differentiator. It's not a clever message. It's not your product. It's your emotional experience or how somebody feels emotionally towards your brand. Jay, I like it. I mean, it's, it's bringing in um, where it used to be mass media, just interrupting. And it's more so moving towards how can I, you know, help you individually um, and building out those journeys? And I really like that, that you bring in and kind of full circle what you're doing with the book and then also what you're doing with uh, Unthinkable Media. So kind of moving to the next um, next phase of this, this episode is I'm not going to grill you with any more questions. Um, but do you have anything that is not online that you would like to share a story um, about kind of this idea on... Um, to, to think um, and not think in the sense of best practices, but think in the best, what's best for the company, the the individual message that companies want to resonate and then use marketing and, and sales and messaging and that kind of stuff. Sorry, I don't, what are you asking? So I'm asking for uh, something that's um, what we were talking about um, through all this and the kind of the evolution of, um, you know, people just spurting out messages um, and doing more of, you know, breaking the wheel and trying to figure out um, what's the best, um, what's the best fit for them individually. Um, and then what you've done with Unthinkable Media, what are some things that you have done that are not on your website or not online that you would, you, a story that you would like to share? Uh, a story I'd like to share that's not online. Um, well, everything I've ever done in my work is digital, so I should put that out there right right away. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of living in public or working in public. Uh, you know, I think one one story that a lot of people don't know is the reason I left Google. Um, I mentioned I didn't like it, but the specific th moment and time of why I didn't like it, it has to do with something on the internet, but I'm happy to tell that story. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, make, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Uh, so I was a digital media strategist and I liked working with brands and agencies. I liked, you know, working with humans in general. I'm a very outgoing and extroverted guy. I draw energy from other people. So I liked that part of the job. What I didn't love was basically shilling sound bites that Google handed me from on high to try and sell people on raising their bids on their keywords. Like it just, it wasn't a creative job. 
And some people love that. And that's no disrespect to those people. They have self-awareness to say, I like that. Me, I wanted to make stuff for a living. I wanted to make people feel and also in doing so, feel emotion myself. So, um, you know, that goes back to my days as a sports journalist. So, so one day a friend of mine sent me this YouTube clip that I was one of those videos, Sean, that like you watch five or six times like in a row. You know, those videos, you're like, this was amazing. I'm gonna watch it again and again and again. And so I went home that day and I had three roommates at the time. And I basically like oversold, overhyped this video to them. And I was like, you guys, I saw the greatest video you've ever seen. And I put the laptop down on the table and I'm continuing to hype this video and we're leaning in and they can't wait and I can't wait. And I open my laptop and I click on the link on YouTube. And of course, what's the first thing we see? An ad, a pre-roll ad. And it's like it diffused the room. I felt like such an idiot because I'd hyped this video and here we got something that we didn't ask for and it was a frustrating experience in our day. And then worse, I had this, this thought in my mind that I think very few people in that situation could have thought, which was, damn it, Eric. Because Eric was my colleague at Google who had sold this advertiser on the idea of doing a YouTube campaign. And here I was like receiving the, the fruits of his labor. So I was like, ah, damn it, Eric. And then, and here's the... The nail in the coffin for me at Google was I realized, oh my God, I have the same job at Google that Eric has, which means that somebody somewhere was cursing the name of the person responsible for a frustrating experience like I just had. And that person didn't realize it, but the party responsible is me. And, and with Google and YouTube's scale, that wasn't like one person. That would be thousands tens, hundreds of thousands. If I was really good as a sales rep at Google, Sean, millions of people had a worse moment in their day on YouTube because of me. And that is not why I got into the business world. And we justify that crap by saying, meh, that's what works, right? But it's a small probability event. We're willing to piss off 90 people to convert 10. And that's just not what I want to do for a living. So I decided this isn't a job for me. And I found my way into content marketing where I could be and create the object that people choose instead of the interruption in front of the thing they're choosing. And I think that is like the best and perhaps only way to build a reputable brand today. That Jay, that's actually a freaking awesome story because I do the same thing. Like, why the heck did this pre-roll video come up? And now I know that we can always blame Eric. <laughs> yes. Well, let me. Uh, there's so many examples of this perpetuating today in a more even modern sense, even though, you know, that wasn't too long ago. That's 2008, which seems like a million years in digital time. But uh, like today, you go to LinkedIn and you see people who at mention 25 different influencers in B2B when they post a new article. They're not mentioning those people because they actually and genuinely want a dialogue. They're mentioning those people because it gets flagged to those people's followers that so-and-so was mentioned. And even better, if all those people that were flagged start to like, like or comment, then the algorithm picks up that piece even more and surfaces it to more people. Now, some people listening might be like, huh, that's a great idea. But this is called tag spam. And what you're doing is you're willing to piss off a whole lot of people, including some influential people, in order to game a system because you think the goal is to acquire more people's attention. But what you're not doing is doing anything with integrity or substance or true value. You're trying to project value instead of actually provide real value. So there's all these examples of people continuing to do those things. And I think it's all echoes of where marketing began, which was like mass media. It's just like like things that like we have to just blanket the world in us. It's all about us. 
And I think those that that mentality exists, but the the need for that mentality is gone. I like that. So moving away from uh, media and um, <laughs> pre-roll videos and Eric, um, I think the converged coffee drinkers would little want to know a little bit more about Jay. Like, why do you get up every morning and go to work? Like, what is your passion when when you go to work? I. I, I just like, like I said, I like to make things. I like to, to I like the, the the idea that I'm constantly building my body of work, and in doing so, I'm improving all the time. You know, it's like reps and sets. Uh, you know, I can very clearly point to a moment in the past where I was writing, and point to a, t- a moment today where I wrote, and be like, here's how I got better because I just keep putting in that work. So I just like filing away new moments, new projects to keep building a bigger and bigger body of work. Um, because I feel such great joy and meaning in doing that. And then to slowly over time, be able to do that only for myself. Like I'm, I'm my own boss. I'm building the career I want, the projects I want. I'm answering to no one. I control the fate in my own career. And other people are responding more emotionally to my work than ever before. Like I've, I've basically found this Venn diagram overlap between stuff I want to make and stuff others want to consume. And f- I think finding that Venn diagram overlap is the hallmark of a fulfilled creative career. And so I feel like I found it. And now my job is to continue to earn the right to communicate with other people to give them things they want to consume. So so I just, it's about meaning and joy, like results, notoriety, money, all those things are, I wouldn't even say secondary, I'd say like tertiary or below. Like the the number one thing I'm trying to do is like the thing I'm doing. I just get joy and intrinsic value and meaning out of doing the actual work. I think you hit on two things that a lot of people are still trying to find is I want to do something, but I don't have the audience to uh, that overlap. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I and I've considered doing this before. I think that the moment has passed, but I think people believe they need more human beings in this world to pay attention to them to be successful than you actually need. Like you need, first of all, if it's just to bring joy to your life, tinker on the side. I mean, almost every good opportunity that came my way was a direct result from a side project. And I think I counted earlier this month, I did 35 public side projects between the beginning of 2008 and today. And some of them lasted a month and some of them lasted three years. Some of them you know, people actually paid attention to and almost most of them, I'd say maybe all but like, I don't know, five, nobody gave a shit about. So like, but each and every one of them had value both to my life intrinsically and also extrinsically to try and get to the next level or the next project or the next client or whatever. And so I don't think you actually need an audience. And by the way, the only way you're going to get an audience, if that's your excuse, is to start, is to start shipping some work. Um, so it's like a little bit of a chicken and egg excuse, but it is an excuse. Yeah. And then the other thing that you mentioned was, um, having the right to have their attention and to keep their attention. I think that was a big thing too, that a lot of people don't realize is like, Oh, I'm just going to send this out and I don't, and I don't have the right to send this to you or being more of a servant rather than a pusher. (laughs) A hundred percent. So, you know, I do, I do weird things that people who are trying to do things at quote unquote at scale, they'd probably say that's crazy, but I, I draw meaning from it and I learn a lot and that improves the work and that therefore the results. I do five to six one-on-one video calls with listeners to my podcast every month. 
I do I for my first book for Break the Wheel, instead of asking for experts or authors to blurb my book, I asked actual readers. Like nobody in a bookstore, nobody on Amazon is going to read a quote and go to the name of one of my readers and be like, oh, I know that person unless they actually know that person like in their, you know, they're a friend of theirs or something. But it's not like, oh, that famous person said nice things about Jay's book. I don't know who Jay is, but I should buy the book. No, I, I don't have that benefit. But, you know, it's about I guess what I'm dancing around here, Sean, is I think great work focuses more on resonance than reach. Like I want to get a small number of people reacting in a really big way to what I do rather than a really big number reacting in like passive ways, like following me or retweeting something. You know, I'd rather have 12 people send me an email that has six paragraphs per email on average and then they go and buy my book than have a lot of people vaguely know who I am and try to cast a wide net and hope that some people get caught that do buy the book or do hire me to speak or work with me on a show. You know, it turns out you only need a few of the right people. You don't need a lot of people. And I think it comes back to focusing on resonance instead of reach. I like that, Jay. So moving on from uh, your passion about work, what do you do creatively or as a hobby that brings back, you know, some of that or helps with that passion with your work? I feel so guilty answering this question all the time because I do get this question a lot, but like I'm one of those weird breeds that I like I am I am now marrying the two things. Like I if I'm not tinkering on a thing for work, I'm not tinkering. I'm like sleeping or going for a run, playing basketball, cooking, being with my family. Like I, I'm not actually working on other things that isn't work because my work like is is the thing I want to do. It's just I I feel very lucky in that way. Um, you know, like when I watch a documentary that I just enjoy for the hell of it, or when I listen to an interview with a great stand-up comedian, those two experiences I would do just for fun. But now the documentary I'm learning to go and make better documentaries, and then the comedian is teaching me lessons from outside the business world to make me a better business speaker. Um, so I think you know I I I have actually group, been able to group it all together. And everything I do, I'm either getting inspiration out of or direct practical learning. I like it. Um, <laughs> we're kindred spirits in that too, because it's like, oh, I just do the podcast. What else do you do? I'm like, the podcast. <laughs> so, Jay, you mentioned basketball, but I uh, wanted to know more about what do you do health-wise to, um, to kind of recharge yourself? Um, because, you know, as human beings, we can burn out. Um, and some people can royally burn out. But what do you do to kind of um, to balance yourself? I think every so often. So there's a very close to work answer to this. And then there's a like a non-screen based answer. So the close to work answer is every so often if I'm really slogging through a big, big project or, you know, I'm stressed or a lot of things are weighing me down, sometimes just like joking around on social media, like putting up a funny something or other that seems irrelevant to my work could be a post on Twitter, Instagram, a blog post, like that's cathartic to me. And it kind of clears my mind a little bit. And it reminds me of why I do the work. I like to say that, you know, like I'm doing work I get to do. I'm not doing work I have to do. And reminding myself of that sometimes is as simple as just making something frivolous to reset a little bit. Um, but then away from a screen, you know, I live down the street from a great park. I love to walk my dog up there, go for a run up there. Um, you know, my wife and I do cook a ton. So that's a creative task, but it obviously isn't me staring at a screen. Um, so, you know, it's like I look for little pockets of time that I can just step outside and be like, OK, 
Like, this is a beautiful day. I'm like, I am grateful for my life, my health, my work, whatever. And five minutes later, I'm like, cool, let me get back to work because work is really exciting. Jay, I love it, man. I love your passion too for your work that you found something that you absolutely love and you found an audience that loves what you do, um, which is, I think, the the new American dream. Um, so I just want to thank... Oh, go ahead. But I want to... Well, sorry, Sean. I want to draw one mm-hmm. very clear distinction. I haven't reached it. I haven't like reached the destination, but I know I'm like orienting all my work towards the right direction. And I think that's that's an important realization I've had. It's not that you're looking for this moment where you're like, I've made it and now I can be fulfilled. It's more like you want to feel like every step you take is is a step you wanted to take, even if it's hard, even if it's like this, this sucks. I don't want to do this one step, but I know it's heading me in the right direction. Like, I think that's where you need to start drawing fulfillment if you don't have it. It's like you want to be on the path instead of like this idea of a finish line because there is no finish line. The only finish lines in work are like A, you decide to stop going down that one path because you hate it or you failed or B, and this is the real finish line, you stop working. Definitely. Like your career reaching. is over. I should reaching instead of reached. <laughs> right. No problem. No, no, no problem at all. But I, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I wasn't portraying that finality. And I also hope people can reorient how they think to get rid of this idea of like reaching an it. Because I don't think it exists. Like if you think there's a mountain peak in the distance and then you look at somebody who you think is up there, if you go talk to that person, they're like, no, 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 the mountain peak's way over there. Right. So nobody actually feels like they're on the finish line. Everyone feels like they're, you know, taking a few steps into a very hard path. But I think the key is to draw joy and meaning from the direction you're heading. Oh, definitely. Well, thank you for the insight. Um, and also thank you for, um, you know, talking about Break the Wheel, your book. Um, for the Converged Coffee Drinkers out there, check out the book as well as check out Unthinkable Media. Um, Jay, thanks for being on the show, man. I really appreciate your insights on everything. Oh, my pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. And to everybody listening, thank you so much. Uh, if you, I'm happy to give away chapter one for free. If you want to hit me up on social media, I'd be happy to offer that to you. But otherwise, I hope you go check out the book. Well, thank you very much, Jay. And to all the Converged Coffee Drinkers, that's a wrap. 